Welcome to the Housewife of Horrors podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Housewife of Horrors. And as usual, my ever faithful companion, Evil from 3B Video, is here. Say hello, Evil. Help, she's holding me against my will. I'm listening to murder stories. Whatever. Piranha's on the TV right now. It's not a murder story. Those are, you know, killer fish. This is this is what's supposed to entice me to do more of this? Yes. Fish? Killer fish. <sighs> Alright, so this week we have a listener request from the grab bag. There's actually no grab bag, it's just a list. I would love a literal grab bag. Uh, well, the, <laughs> some people may not like the grab bag because they may put their request in now and we don't get to it because we're never picking it out of the grab bag. So Patience is a virtue. Your day will come. You can reach me on my Instagram or Facebook, and I also put up visual aids so you can see what the people look like that we're talking about. I know for me personally, I like faces to names. So without further ado, this is a listener request from Alana. We appreciate your listening and your support, and here is the case of she chose David and Susan Hendricks, which was an incident that happened in 1983, and we're going to do a little backstory before we get to the incident. Is this a murderous couple or siblings? This is a married couple, but we'll get into that. David Hendricks was born in Chicago in August of 1954. He grew up in the suburb of Oak Park just outside Chicago, which coincidentally Incidentally, is the same suburb that Chris Parker comes from in Adventures in Babysitting. However, wow. <laughs> break, break that out at, at a dinner party with your with your uh, pop it, culture knowledge. My Adventures in Babysitting knowledge. Yeah, I mean it's a movie I've watched since you know I've been able to watch movies pretty much. Back to the case, his family, they were very religious growing up, and they were part of a Christian group called the Plymouth Brethren which is a non-denominational Christian group that has been dated back to 1820s Ireland. And their belief system is, it's Latin called sola scriptura. I'm sure I said that wrong, but it means by scripture alone. So they believe that the Bible is the word that they live by, bottom line, yeah. It was a small congregation and they didn't have like churches that they met at. They met at each other's houses for like religious discussions and prayer circles. And they didn't think of themselves as part of the Christian denomination because they didn't have an internal structure of leadership like say a preacher and ushers and deacons and all that. So they didn't have any of that. It was just religious people getting together at each other's houses, praying and discussing God. Sounds like a fan club. Yeah, I guess you could say that. In 1969, at a gathering through the church, I know I said church, but they don't think of themselves as that, but David met a lady named Susan Palmer, and she was 16 at the time. And his crush was like the minute he saw her. However, she lived a couple hundred miles away. So details. A, a relationship just wasn't in the works at that time. So the summer before her senior year, she was working a summer position at a religious publishing company and stayed a short time at the Hendricks household. While staying there, she and David got to know each other a lot better. 
her summer job eventually turned into a full-time job and she finished school by going like correspondent kind of night thing while working at the publishing company and just a few months after she went full-time and everything her and David secretly got engaged he ended up graduating from high school early might I add he's like 16 and she's 17 she just wrapped up high school he's wrapping up high school as we speak they're engaged David ends up graduating he went to college and he ends up working for a friend of the family at a prosthetics company <laughs> making artificial limbs and different types of braces like leg braces back braces stuff like that and this is kind of where he finds his niche in the career world <sighs> went to school to make prosthetic limbs i don't know what he went to college for <laughs> but he ended up going to college and then worked for this company that made prosthetic limb I guess I could have delved further into what he went to college for, but it didn't seem like it was all that. What do you ma- think was his favorite prosthetic limb to make? We will get into that, actually. Holy so. shit. <laughs> it's not actually a prosthetic limb, but it is something he does invent. He invents something? Yes, he does. Wow. And so in 1973, David and Susan got married. He's 18, she's 19, and just a few months after they get married, she's pregnant with their first kid. And September 24th, 1974, their first child, Rebecca Hendricks, was born. Late in 1974, 1975, I try to get as a definitive timeline as I can, but some of my the research that I was looking into, they just kind of had muddled timelines, so I'm trying to do my best with that. Well, insider bit nothing irritating. The Housewife of Horror is more than muddy details. Right, I'd like to know a timeline so we can keep up with this. How many days after? Because, like, in the town of Dryden, there's some tragedy that hits, like, I mean, it goes on for days, consecutive days on end, and it's like, damn, that's a whole lot of tragedy for two, three days, you know what I mean? Well, anyway, so in 1974, 1975, David leaves the prosthetic business that he had been working with for the last three years, and he opens his own business in Galesburg, Illinois. Is it his own prosthetic limb company? Why, yes, it is. I'm breaking out and I'm starting my own. (laughs) He does. He does. And then in 1976, April 30th, 1976, they have their second child, Grace. So now they have this happy little family. He's got his prosthetic business working for himself. They've got two beautiful little girls. It seems like it's his lot in life to be surrounded by beautiful women and make fake limbs. In if ni- I ain't living a dream, I don't know what is. <laughs> so same here, 1976, 1977-ish. The business in Galesburg actually wasn't very successful, so the family closed shopped and they moved to Bloomington, Illinois, where he tried his luck again at opening his own business. A little while after moving to Bloomington on June 22, 1978, their third child and only son, Benjamin, was born. And he, sometimes they refer to him as Benji throughout some of this research. So I like, I like Benji. It sounds cute. Uh. Well, it's the late 70s, and the Hendricks family is doing good. They were healthy, happy. Susan's a stay-at-home mom. He's got his second attempt at owning his own business, and it's going well. Babe, you don't have to work. I've got my prosthetic limb business, and limbs are flying off the shelf. It's November 1979, and here's where we get to his invention. David patented a back brace that he designed. It was called the cash brace, as in cash money. Cash stood for, and I have to say this very slowly. Very slowly. Cruciform anterior spinal hyperextension brace. 
Sounds like some shit Andre the Giant would wear for WrestleMania 3. Actually, you've probably seen one of these and didn't even really know it. In the movie Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, when they flash back to Michelle being in high school, she's wearing a back brace because she has scoliosis. So if you've ever seen somebody who has this metal brace around their torso area that goes all the way around, that is the cash brace to make sure that a person with scoliosis, a curvature of the spine, stays more erect and upright so that as they grow that spinal curvature will straighten out is that that same thing that the chicken the house bunny was wearing yes okay, okay so now i've got an idea yes it's basically just this like scoliosis brace to help straighten out the spine oh man so i'm so i'm guessing dude left his car at the red light with the money he's making off the, this thing sure so in july of 1982 they stay in bloomington and they buy a nicer home like david's family growing up his family was also deeply religious their religion however did not allow for televisions and radios and when they did listen to music it was of course religious hymns and religious music fun yeah, super exciting stuff here. November 7th, 1983, Susan went to a baby shower. This is when everything kind of happens. So Susan, <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like a good success story. Like, Isn't this supposed to be about murder? We're getting to that today, now. Oh, so man. it's now November 7th, 1983. Susan went to a baby shower, a family baby shower, might I add. And David took the kids to Chuck E. Cheese for some pizza and fun showbiz pizza probably at that time in 83 it yeah i guess it was showbiz at that time god damn right well minutes before 8 p.m on the night of november 7th david and the kids left chuck e cheese he thought that okay the neighborhood had a bookmobile and he thought that the bookmobile was going to be leaving at eight o'clock so he was kind of hurrying to get the kids to get home so they can grab their books head the one block over to the bookmobile so they could trade in their books and get new books when they get there david is relieved to see that the bookmobile was still there and it actually didn't leave till 8 15. The kids exchanged their books and they returned home. When they got home, they decided to play a couple of rounds of hide and seek. And then the kids went to bed about 8.30, 9 p.m., 10.30. Susan gets home from the baby shower. David says that him and Susan, they caught up with each other about their day. And then he left for his planned business trip to Wisconsin. At night? Yeah. Okay. So this trip would be him visiting businesses throughout Wisconsin that sold orthopedic products. And he was going on about selling his back brace and whatever <laughs> products he had as well. I'm just picturing him using like that uh, auctioneer kind of voice. Let me tell you about the newest, greatest thing. It's the cash back brace. And cash is what you'll be earning off this back brace. Well, it's the next day, November 8th, about 9 a.m., David speaks with his secretary from, I'm going to say this name wrong, Wausau. Wausau. Uh, Wausau, Wisconsin, which is nearly five hours from Bloomington. Numerous times through the day, David keeps calling his house. Nobody is answering. He's starting to get worried, so he calls a few people, a couple of friends, a couple of family members. Nobody has heard from anybody at the house either. When he finds out that they didn't show up to a family dinner, a planned family dinner at 5.30, he's on like high alert. So David, still in Wisconsin, calls Bloomington police to do a welfare check on his family. After he requests the check, he gets in his car and he makes the four or five hour drive home. When Officer Mike Hibbing and Detective Dennis O'Brien enter the house, they find the back door closed but unlocked. 
The house is a mess like somebody was looking for something, and he finds Susan and all the children dead. Susan was in the master bedroom, and she had been stabbed repeatedly, and an axe had been used on her as well. She had been stabbed with such force that it actually went through her spine. There's something else about her death, but that won't come up quite yet. Her death gets a little more odd. In the other bedroom, the bodies of the three children were together. Rebecca was on one of the beds, and Grace and Ben was laying on the other bed. But on the bed with Grace and Ben was the butcher knife and the axe that was used to murder them all, and the weapons had been completely wiped clean. Benjamin, unfortunately, got the worst of all of them. He had, this is really intense. This kid's like a five-year-old. Oh yeah, I forgot to add that. The kids are five, seven, and nine. So we're talking about three kids under the age of 10. It's not gonna take much to end their lives, let's say. But somebody felt the need to do this to a five-year-old. But Benjamin had 16 head and face wounds from both weapons. Not only did they use the ax on him, but they also stabbed him in the face repeatedly. Grace's throat was cut and she was struck in the head with the axe four times. Rebecca was struck in the forehead with the axe. Sounds like something personal. Exactly, and a whole lot of rage involved. So David comes home, he finds the police everywhere, his house is an official crime scene, and he is told his whole family was murdered. David, of course, becomes suspect number one. The detective on site felt that David didn't have, what what did I say here? He had a lack of emotion upon hearing the tragic news, and he felt that his business trip was a convenient alibi. I mean, well, the trip is, but I mean, however he reacts is, not everyone reacts the same way. Right, maybe he's kind of taking it all in and it hasn't really 100% hit him yet. Everybody grieves and processes differently, so... Maybe he's taking a total barber from Night of the Living Dead. He's just in a haze for a while. How would you think that's real? I wouldn't even think that was real probably when I first heard it. I'd be in a perpetual state of like, when am I waking up from this shit? So David told police that he left November 7th, the day before, at about 10 30 11 o'clock after susan got home from the shower he said that they talked about their day and i've already gone through this but i wrote it here again he was in stevens point which is four and a half hours from bloomington having breakfast at 7 a.m and he had a time stamp receipt from the restaurant and the exact time was actually 7 17. but even more suspicion fell on david because and i have the reasons listed out here so the first reason why some more suspicion fell on David was that the crime scene appeared to be staged. There was no forced entry into the house. Around the house, things looked as if somebody was going through things, but nothing was reportedly taken at that point. This includes Susan's purse was dumped out on the floor. So like a robbery gone bad kind of thing. But once again, they d- it didn't appear at that point that anything had been stolen. It looks like somebody just kind of did that to throw someone off, possibly. Right. But they did make note that during the trial, I can't get to that yet. Oh, so, don't be spoiling early. No, no spoilers early. So the second reason is the origin of the weapons. 
the weapons belong to the Hendrix family and they came from the property and why they felt that David was the murderer because of this is for the most part murderers bring a weapon with them they don't go in there empty-handed with the hopes that maybe there's a weapon when I get there I mean we can guarantee that there's going to be weapons in every house in America everywhere it works for michael myers every time so right but for the most part in reality not the movies when somebody's coming to kill somebody or they have the intent of it they're bringing their own fucking weapon nobody wants to go there in hopes of well i hope i can find the knife in time or i hope they have a fucking gun safe that's unlocked or whatever it is so you don't have to hope if you already know that it's there and then three is the result of the autopsies The report detailed, and we're going to go a lot into this, and I actually got tired of typing stomach contents over and over in my note, (laughs) but the... the Hazards of the job, dear. Yes, the report details that the food in the children's stomach was only partially digested and that the vegetables were intact enough to be identified as vegetables. The condition of the food indicated that the kids were killed early on in the evening. So not long after dinner. Right. So based on the stomach contents, the detective speculated that David killed the children after returning from the bookmobile. Then Susan came home around 10.30, kind of chit-chatted with him, and then went to bed. And then he killed her once she was asleep, and he bounced out on his planned business trip. When they got to Susan's stomach contents, they said they couldn't tell what was in Susan's stomach. But of course, Susan wasn't. She, she had, wasn't at Chuck E. Cheese with them. She was at this baby shower. Yeah, so if she had something. It was probably, Com- presumably, hours beforehand. Well, then the fourth reason is David refused to take a polygraph per his attorney's advice. But to police, this was a clear sign that he was hiding something. Nah, not necessarily. I mean, at the time, polygraphs are like, I guess more considered a make or breaker thing. But now, like in 2022, it's like, ah, those are as about as uh, important as well, nothing really. Well, despite all these suspicious reasons, police couldn't determine what David's motive would have been to brutally murder his entire family. And even if they had a motive, there was no physical evidence connecting him to the murders. Maybe they They disappointed him. They did have physical evidence, which was shoe prints. And we'll get more into that. On the surface, David was a typical family man, owned his own business, active in his religion, and he was happy with Susan. Friends told police that neither one of them expressed any problems or unhappiness with each other or their marriage. And even though there didn't appear to be a motive or anything out of the ordinary with the Hendrixes, the police did uncover that David had inappropriate behaviors with his back brace models. He didn't have sex with any of the models but there was an escalation of his inappropriate behaviors but this will be discussed more as the trial unfolds that's gotta be just the weirdest photo shoot in history like this ultra like religious dude setting up a back brace photo shoot with models i mean they have to have the 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 braces on to show how they're demonstrated and all of that so you need a model a mannequin ain't gonna cut it I mean, I guess, but, like, going and making that, like, a sexy type of interaction is like, okay. All right, like I said, there was no physical evidence connecting David at this point. Can I ask one question? Sure. How do you spell the last name Hendrix? 
Is it the... H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S. There's okay. no X. It's not Jimmy. Oh, okay. There's no physical evidence connecting David to this case. And as for the physical evidence, as grisly as the murders were, the killer would have had blood all over them. And no blood was found throughout the house except for the two rooms. They did a luminol spray test throughout the house. The bathroom had lots of trace evidence, but it couldn't be determined if it was from blood or organic compounds. I had to say that slowly because there's too many or ors there organic compounds upon the initial testing because sometimes some organic soaps and detergents and stuff like that can pop on a luminol test so they didn't huh. know if this was blood or if this was you know stuff soap. they couldn't tell a second test was needed to be determined if it was blood or soaps that was used in the family shower that second test was never conducted and due to the lack of blood, it was speculated that the killer, or killers, left the house covered in blood after the murders. Those bloody clothes have never been located. Do you think you would do good if that was a game show and you was on it? Is it blood or is it soap? You get like one run with aluminol and you're like, all right, using your intellect, can you determine is it blood or is it soap? No, because if a chemical compound can't determine what it is, then how is a naked eye going to do it? You could do it. In another attempt to find some physical evidence on David, police completely dismantled his car. <laughs> yes, like they took like this... Like the walking tall with the rock and Johnny Knoxville pulling dude's car apart? Pretty much, yes. <laughs> this was all futile because no evidence was located there either. This is starting to sound like harassment from the PD to me. They mention in throughout some of my research that I read that the detective, ever since he kind of was emotionless from finding out about the initial murder of his family, he straight up had tunnel vision for David. I mean, like, it's sounding like it. Two to three weeks after the murders, David is arrested because police thought he acted strangely during an interview the day of the murders, and of course him not taking a polygraph, that didn't help his cause. That's not reason to arrest somebody. I guess they had some kind of something. No, it sounds like they ain't got shit to me. Well, they had some shit because he sits in prison for quite some time. Not to spoil it, but in October of 1984, David is tried for the murders of his family. At the trial, he is supported by both his family and Susan's family. Of course, he pleads not guilty, and the state attorney even had doubt about David being guilty, and he kind of felt like they didn't really have solid, solid evidence like all of this could be argued and he felt like he was just kind of prosecuting this because of political reasons i mean yeah he argued that david did have a motive and this was it this this is some speculatory bullshit and i kind of feel like some of this is reaching but people kill for all kinds of reasons so i, I can't say i mean it's... it feels like it's reaching already so hit me so david was unhappy with susan but he felt trapped and he couldn't leave her because he would lose standing in his church if he ever divorced her. He was interested in other women. He had to kill the kids so it wouldn't look as suspicious if he just killed his wife. And being religious, he felt that the children would be in heaven with their mother. But wait, there's more. 
I found this. I'm waiting. Oh, yeah. I found this part of this speculative motive to be a very far reach. Because David felt he was corrupt, he had failed to live up to his deeply rooted religious standards, so he killed his family before they would become corrupt like him. Do people get murdered to save their souls? Yes, it, it happens in religious murders like the whole Andrea Yates case, which we can talk about that on a whole different day because that's a show by itself. I can't buy into that because of the gruesomeness of their deaths, how they were killed, that person or persons was angry. You don't go to the extreme and not be embroiled in some kind of emotion. I just, uh, I don't know. If, you, if he's trying to save them, he's not stabbing the child like 17 times in the face right. or whatever. He's going to kind of... He's, he's going to be Jason Siegel and forgetting Sarah Marshall. I'm sorry. Or maybe not even that. I feel like they're going to have just a quick painless death. Maybe just kind of smother them out. Call it a day. They're in heaven with their mom. They're not going to be corrupt like me. Just the embroiled emotions and the brutalness of it. This person was angry. So did the PD put more stock behind it being like well in his mind if he killed them more brutally it got them to heaven faster like a I don't express think that's lane how, that's not how that works i mean it's as logical as anything else so far from these guys back to the trial they had to focus on the no forced entry into the house and the staged robbery and his motives and going back to the undigested food in their stomachs because there was no physical evidence connecting him to any of this so all they had was speculated motives and chewed up food it was argued that the kids were killed before susan got home from the shower because their food was not fully digested if they died after david left their food should have been more broke down they had five medical examiners testify for the prosecution one of those examiners was dr michael Baden. oh yes of the hbo autopsy shows dr Baden. Oh, shit. However, the defense clapped back with even more, even though they were medical examiners, that none of them were specialized in digestion, and there are different factors that affect digestion. Like for the fact that how much food was eaten, how much was that food chewed, and was there physical activity after the food was chewed and eaten. They established that the kids were at the Chuck E. Cheese and that they probably ate fast, which means they didn't chew their food as much in an effort to get back to the fun. You know, playing games, running around with other kids, getting their tokens and stuff. So the kids were just kind of scarfing it down super quick back to the fun. Well, then the plot thickens when one of the medical examiners stated that he wrote out two different forms when it came to the stomach contents. The first one he wrote was in November of 83, directly after the murders, and it stated that Grace's food, quote, had mostly been digested and that she, quote, ate vegetables. But since it was mostly digested, he didn't know what the vegetables were. I was like, what vegetables? They don't serve vegetables at showbiz pizza. Yeah, they do at the salad bar. The kids ain't eating from a salad bar, but all right. The second report was done in February of 1984, so like four or five months later. He did the second report because he felt he made errors in the initial report. He says in the second one that he actually never looked in Grace's stomach and that it was Susan's stomach contents that he had examined in November of 1983. He thought he examined Susan's digested food twice. 
I don't know why he did it twice. They just said that, so I don't know. So he looked at the food twice. This time, when he was looking in Grace's stomach, he found big chunks of tomatoes, mushrooms, onions, and black olives. Now we have discrepancies on top of discrepancies. And to add to those discrepancies, members of Grace's family, her grandparents, they stood up basically and was like, nope, this is wrong. Grace would have never eaten mushrooms under any reason she would have not have eaten it. So this has got to be wrong. Well, the OG medical examiner admitted that he didn't know what four to five hour old food would look like in the stomach and that he just looked at the food real quick. And that's how he determined they died one to three hours after eating. One to three hours, a whole lot can happen in a fucking stomach in one hour, let alone three hours. These medical examiners are not helping the prosecution with any of their admittance that determination of the death time is based on food digestion and that it's not an exact science. It is now time for them to argue that David was unhappy and didn't want to be married anymore and their proof was that shortly before all the murders, a few months before, we'll just say, that David had lost some weight and he started doing his hair differently and then to add to that, he started displaying these inappropriate behaviors with the women that worked around him. I mean, how old was he? I know when he finally, like at the end of this story, he's like 34. He's in his early 30s at this point. I mean, just be wanting to change up style, man. I wouldn't necessarily take stock in somebody losing 50 pounds as, oh, they want, they're unhappy and they're losing weight to go find somebody else. Maybe they were bordering on diabetes. Who the fuck knows? I mean, his doctor knows. But... Gotta look good for the cash models. So they bring in the women that David had worked with. His secretary that he worked with said that he was a perfect gentleman, professional, all this other stuff. But the women he had model his back braces is who they really focused on. And the prosecution wanted to show that his inappropriate behavior with the women got more brazen over time. They showed with the first few women that he worked with that he just basically kind of wanted to see them undress. They showed that it started out him just wanting to see them naked to touching and then to so on however he never forced himself on anybody and when the women did say no he respected that and all admit that he didn't ask to have sex with any of them a few of them even stayed to work after their encounters they would say oh no I don't want to do this and he's like okay well will you still stay and do the shoot they stayed did the shoot they got paid that was the end of the story he is inappropriate but he's not he's a lucky Lou right well that brings us back to that he was unhappy but he didn't want to lose his standing in the church so it's better to kill her than to divorce her I mean, there is some precedence for that being a motive, but I'm, I'm, go on. His defense argued against what they had as proof and interjects doubt into everything that the prosecution just laid out. They lay out that these medical examiners are not digestion specialists, which they weren't. Time of death determination, again, is not an exact science based off of that. The digestion factors include one that they didn't list before is that all foods don't break down at the same rate either. So then the discrepancies in the autopsy report was added to this. There's no physical evidence connected to him. There's no forced entry, which they argue the lock 
could have been picked. The staged robbery? Money was actually missing from the house. Plus, the FBI agent that did testify in the case corroborates that the house appeared to be robbed and robbed for something specific because they even went through the freezer in the refrigerator in the basement. These people were looking for something oddly specific. The like specific jewels and shit. I'm totally ripping from Whoopi Goldberg's burglar movie. Like, oh, we hiding expensive jewelry and shit inside the lean cuisine in the freezer. They just said something specific. Police used his religion to drum up their motive for why he killed them. But what they didn't know, and this is from church member testimony, is that their members could get divorced without losing their standing in the church. Now, if a member did do some things that were frowned upon, they basically get like a timeout, what they called set aside, and where you can still attend church, but you cannot partake in the celebrations and traditions of the church until you're rectified. I call it a timeout. They call it set aside. Is it officially a church now, or is that just in place of... Okay, I, I keep saying... Ch- yeah, the gathering. Okay, the fan club. Despite his inappropriate behaviors with the models, none of these women filed complaints against him, and he didn't display any behaviors or indicate anything about leaving Susan to anybody. As a matter of fact, just months before the murders, Dave and Susan, for their 10-year anniversary, went to England, and they were actually making plans to adopt a a little boy. So they were going to add to their family. Uh, I think that if you want to kill somebody, you're not going on European vacations and adopting children. They add that from the initial start of the investigation, the lead detective had tunnel vision for David. Remember I said they arrested him after the news interview where they thought he acted strange and refused to take the polygraph? Well, they make that the focus. So the police didn't even look into anybody else being the killer or that there was more than one killer. Defense laid out that the physical evidence they do have, the three shoe prints, none of those belong to anybody who lived in the house. And if they did, Susan was a homemaker and she kept a very clean home, so that floor wouldn't have been dirty for very long. In addition to the stomach content testimony, the medical examiner said that Rebecca and Benjamin were killed with both the axe and the knife, which Grace was killed by just the knife. And as for Susan, both were used on her, but she was also strangled. Multiple weapons were used, and this tends to fit the profile of more than one attacker. For me, this says two killers, because what is the point? Okay, we're killing this these three people. Two of them had both of them used on them. Two of them just had the one weapon. So we'll focus on the one that, the two that had the two weapons. What is the point of stabbing this kid to death with a knife? He's already dead. And then you go and get an ax to kill him even more? He's already dead. You're wasting time when you could get caught at this point. You need to get the fuck out of the house as quick as you can. So you're looking for whatever it is you need. You're killing whoever it is you need to kill. If they're already dead, why spend more time on brutalizing the bodies when this could be time either looking for what you're looking for or getting the fuck out of Dodge? Maybe he's trying to evaluate the effectiveness of each weapon, contemplating if he spent too much on either an axe or a knife. They're all dead. This axe is cutting like shit. I should have just stuck with the knife. I regret this axe purchase. All right. Side note that... This wasn't at the trial, but it was in the police files that at 1, uh, 1.02 a.m. 
on the morning after the bodies were discovered, a young-sounding woman called the home phone. A cop that was watching over the house answered the call. The woman probably thought she was talking to David, and she goes on to say that two guys killed the family, and they can be found in Chicago. However, this call was not traced. David then takes the stand, and he admits to the inappropriate behaviors, and but he loved his family dearly, and he never would have killed them. And plus that Susan, you know, they met when he was in high school, and she had kind of been the only woman he had ever been with, so he just kind of was a victim of his hormones, as you could say. On November 30th, 1984, it took the jury six and a half hours to find David guilty on all four counts. At his sentencing, he was facing the death penalty. However, the judge said he believed that David probably committed the murders, but he had reasonable doubt. Because of the reasonable doubt, he was just sentenced to life. So while in prison, he ends up meeting this lady who's there visiting somebody. Her name's Pat Miller, single mom, and he's at the Menard Correctional Facility at this point. David is granted permission to marry Pat. The warden felt that since he would never get out of prison, that it was okay to let him get married. So in December of 1988, David and Pat got married with David's mother and even Susan's mother in attendance. In the same month, David got an appeal and the Illinois Supreme Court overturned his conviction and granted him a retrial. The new trial argued that he was wrongfully convicted due to the jury being biased by the testimonies of the models and about his religion, but his conviction was upheld. About a year later, September, October 1989, the Illinois Supreme Court again, he was given another appeal and this time they decided that the models should not have testified, that it did bias the jury. So in February of 1990, he got a whole new trial without the testimony of the models. The prosecution argued the same case now minus the models and the same motive of him feeling trapped, losing, standing, blah, blah. The prosecution didn't prove that he was unhappy and that the stomach contents aren't reliable. David was then acquitted on all charges on March 29, 1991, and he walked out of that courthouse free. David and Pat did stay married for a few years, but they ended up divorcing. In 2002, David remarried and he and his new wife now live in Florida. He ended up publishing a book about his former cellmate when he was in Menard and the book is called Tom Henry Confessions of a Killer. As of August 2021, he was still married and living in Florida. David has come out publicly that he knows who killed his family. He says that it is his former brother-in-law. Susan's sister, Martha, was married to a guy, a guy named John Lewis, and they divorced right after 198, David's 1984 conviction. It is suspected that Martha made that 102 a.m. phone call and she was suspected because when she was asked if she made that call during the polygraph, it showed up that she was deceptive. After she divorced John, she told her family that at the same time of the murders, John was an orderly at the local hospital and on the night of the killings, he came home wearing scrubs that were covered in blood. 
I don't know if it was she didn't either think to ask or she didn't want to know, but she never asked him why he was all bloody. Or why not change that shit before you get in the car? Well, Martha went on to tell her family that John was also jealous of David's success and money. Prosthetic limbs and back braces, son of a bitch. Maybe not jealous of that, but jealous of the money that was coming in from it. I mean, they were able to move around, buy a bigger house. They, I'm not going to say they were living high on the hog like Pablo Escobar, but they weren't hurting for money by any means. So Martha also had the key to Susan and David's house, being her sister. David's younger brother, James, said that at one time, John did actually confess to him that he did it. However, upon urging John to go to the police to turn himself in, he refused and nobody was ever actually able to like get him on tape or any type of proof that would corroborate John's confession. So it's all just them saying John did it. John, of course, denies that he ever killed anyone or confessed to anything, and he is not a suspect to the police whatsoever because of, I feel, that tunnel vision. I don't feel like David did this because if he had done it, there would be some kind of evidence connecting him to this. Okay, I've watched enough forensic files and a lot of the experts say that a murderer will make 30 mistakes and they will forget five of them. At some point, there would have been, maybe with the brutality and the force of these weapons going into the body, there would be some kind of hand injury or cut or some kind of don't mind that motorcycle just flying by. There would be some kind of blood evidence of David's somewhere in that crime scene. Or there would be blood in the car if he did get in the car after the murders. He would have been covered in blood. There would have been something found. And they just kept going and going and going in this one direction, still finding nothing after all of these efforts. I'm going to go with the brother-in-law, John Lewis, because he came home covered in blood. He was jealous. The phone call from the wife, the line about the phone call, maybe it might seem convenient that did, this... Did he act alone? Do you believe he acted alone or did he have someone with him? Martha, the sister, said that two people killed them. They're going to Chicago. John did, I guess, take off to Chicago after that. I didn't follow up that note, but I can show you a hundred cases, at least, of women that kill over jealousy. When it comes to men, you just don't hear about jealousy being that much of a motivating factor. You hear about it, but not nearly as much as women. But either way, man or woman, people are people, and when people get jealous, how do some people deal with that? They eliminate the cause of their jealousy. And in many cases, that elimination is murder. I'm going to say that John had... Do you think his... If it was the brother-in-law, do you think his plan was to take out the whole family? Take out part of the family and blame it on him? Or was going for him and just settled on the family and hoped it would be blamed on him? I'm going to go off of what I have seen and I feel like the brother does fit the the motif he did have the covered in blood he had a key to the house because of Martha 
he had a motive. Now, granted, what would he have gained from it besides eliminating the object of his jealousy? I don't know if he thought maybe Martha would get some kind of inheritance being that the whole family was killed. They didn't go into the motive because this guy has never been a fucking suspect. He's been a mention in a phone call and then David coming out publicly saying that he thinks it's this guy and then the brother John saying, yes, he did confess to me too. That is it. He didn't say, I killed them because of ABCD. He just said, I killed them. Mm. And now this guy, John Lewis, has also just dropped out of sight. Like, nobody knows where this guy is. I'm sure there are people who know, but the research that I was looking into, he could not be located for further comment or just an updated status of, he's living here, he's married, he has kids, he works at a car wash. I don't know. There was nothing beyond that. Ghosts. And the other motive was blown out the water because the dude got remarried twice after the fact. So if he didn't want to get divorced and thought killing would be, a, was their whole basis argument. It's blown out when then they're like, well, he's done been yeah. divorced since then. Yeah, he divorced more than twice, actually. They did go on to say, like, he was married to his fourth wife at this point and still living in Florida. Sounds right. Either way, divorce obviously wasn't a fear of his. It may have been a fear at that point, but then once the church testified that, oh yeah, you can get divorced, many members actually have, maybe he was no longer afraid of divorce and then broke up with two, three, and married number four. Hell, I don't know. I don't think that David did this. I think even back then there would have been some kind of physical evidence connecting this guy. Their dedicated focus on the stomach contents, it's like it's not an exact science. Then he's like, well, no, I thought I looked at her stomach, but I actually looked at her stomach twice. And then I looked at this and then they all admit that they just kind of eyeballed it and then wrote down what they thought based off of eyeballing what they thought the food should look like. I mean, isn't that forensics? No, it should be an exact science and nailing something down. Like when they look at a hair, like a hair follicle, they can match that to something that's definitively, yes, it belongs to this person. They can do that. With the stomach contents, they were just like, yep, that's what I think digested pizza looks like after five hours, but I'm not sure. So I'm just going to mark it down that, yeah, they died three hours. So do you think medical examiners and or PD are, uh, I'm stuff sh- are at fault from that? We can handle this. We don't need to bring in outside experts thing. We can handle this shit on our own. I mean, they had the FBI testify at the trial, so they obviously had some kind of outside influence on this case. I'm just shocked that they actually got a conviction the first time because to me, all of these admittances by the medical examiners that this isn't an exact science, we just eyeballed this, there's no forced entry, lock can be picked. They shot holes into every thing that the prosecution laid down but they still got a fucking conviction it all came down to those back brace models which biased the jury and was eliminated from his retrial so that right there which i'd love to see some of these modeling photos i tried to look it i up. actually did find one it's kind of potato quality but it's the one that they did show in one of the shows that i watched about this and i will be posting that along with a couple other visual aids but that just about wraps up the case for this episode one to ten ratio on seven how would you rate that photo of the back brace? I thought she was a very pretty lady. Well, hell, I'll give her an eight or a nine. Oh, she, damn. 
It was an 80s photo, so she's got 80s hair. She's not, like, nude or nothing. She just, she's wearing, like, a black shirt. That's its... She's smiling. Her hair is done. She's pretty. Uh, That's its own specialty magazine right there. Yes. Nude back brace models. None of them were nude, uh, except for a couple of them, but they didn't have pictures taken of them. They were just massaged or touched. That was it. <laughs> During the trial, they talked about that. Okay. So, I was like, for like I photos? said, they showed, they, I told you during the trial that they showed, it just went from, oh, he just looked at one naked. Yeah, yeah. Then it moved up to, he was kind of touching one. He massaged one. It was an escalation of his inappropriate behaviors. Mm-hmm. With that being said, thank you for listening along this week. So we appreciate you listening along. You can drop me a line if you want. I'll have my visual aids at my housewife of horrors on Instagram and Facebook. I can't wait to see these this back brace photo when you post it. It's it's seriously it's uh, you're hyping it up like it's gonna be some like playboy spread. Be hyped up? I'm sure people listening are like, I gotta see this shit. It's if just a not. chick in a back brace. That's it. She's got, she's a hundred percent clothed. It's working for somebody. <laughs> On that note, thanks for listening along, and we will catch you next episode. I believe we have another listener request.